you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to our sermon passage today, which is Mark chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible, you can find this printed for you in the bulletin. It is a longer passage today. And let me give you a little disclaimer. Uh, This is, I think, the most controversial, most maybe difficult uh, chapter in all of Mark. So what could go wrong, right? Uh, This is, of course, about the end times. This is uh, the core of Jesus' teaching about his return and what will happen in the world in between his first coming and his second. And there's a lot of weeds here. We're going to try to keep to the main idea while diving down every now and then into some of the weeds. But hopefully I'm going to not get lost there and come right back up to the main point. Uh, You can keep me accountable and call me out if I'm getting too deep into the weeds, right? We want to get done before 3 o'clock in the afternoon today. So here we go. Uh, Starting in verse 1, let's read together. And Jesus, uh, as he was coming out of the temple, uh, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is... On the housetop, not go down nor enter the house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days... No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders 
to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. Just as Jesus says there in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's words will not pass away. Amen? Now imagine hearing that the White House would soon be destroyed completely. And imagine you didn't hear it from just some crazy guy on the street who is clearly unstable. Imagine if it was from a press conference put on by the Department of Homeland Security. And imagine they said, we are at a high degree of certainty, red alert, that in the coming days, very soon, there will not be one stone left upon another at the White House. How would you feel? How would the whole country feel? Nervous? Terrified? I mean, I think those words fit, right? Because the White House, we understand the White House is not just another house. It would be enough if a house got destroyed, but it's the White House. It stands for everything that is American. It stands for our nation. It stands for our government. It stands for our political order, our history, everything kind of summed up in that one little house on Pennsylvania Avenue. If someone said not one stone will be left on another, it would signal to us the end of the world as we know it, wouldn't it? Well, think about that. That is something like what I think the disciples felt as Jesus was sort of a wet blanket to their enthusiasm about the temple. They said, look how beautiful it is. And Jesus says in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. This will happen. And Jesus' indication is this will happen soon. You will, some of you will live to see this happen. The temple, the temple that was established way back in the days of Moses by design and then by David who received more designs and Solomon and then rebuilt by Ezra. I mean, these are big names, Ezra, and then paid for in its renovations by Herod the Great. Josephus tells us that the gleam from off the temple when the sun was shining on it could be seen from miles around. 
It was the glorious symbol of Jewish religion. It was the glorious symbol of Jewish politics, independence, and nationality. And Jesus says it's going to be gone. Notice how the disciples react. When? What are the signs? How can we be ready for this? Surely, Jesus, you're talking about sometime in the distant future, right? Long after we're gone, right? And Jesus launches into one of his most famous yet controversial speeches called the Olivet Discourse because he gives it on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple. He's teaching them about the end, not only of the temple, but the end of the world. This is where it gets practical this morning. Probably none of us came in this morning worried about the White House. And I know none of us came in today worried about the temple in Jerusalem. But isn't it true, everything in life, as we know it, will come to an end. Where do you turn? Let me help you not get lost in the weeds here. Jesus is presenting himself in this passage as the Christian's great hope. A Christian doesn't hope primarily in an event or in a series of events even. A Christian hopes in Christ, in a person, right? And there's events involved in it, but it's the person that gives us the hope. And so let's look together at the bulletin. We're going to see three things about Jesus today as he talks his disciples through it. Uh, First of all, Jesus is hope in trouble. We need that. Second, he is hope beyond trouble. And lastly, he is hope for living. Let's look at it together. First of all, he is hope in trouble. That's what Jesus talks about in the first 23 verses. I mean, a whole huge chunk of this chapter is all about the trouble that the disciples are going to face. They ask Jesus in verse uh, 4, what are the signs? Tell us when. Jesus, you've just announced a big thing here, and we trust you. You're not just some crazy guy. When you say the temple's going to be destroyed, we believe it. Tell us when. And Jesus doesn't really comfort them all that much, if you'll notice. Not at first, anyway. Because he adds to the destruction of the temple several other things they're going to also have to suffer. Did you notice that? He's like, if you think the temple being destroyed is bad, let me tell you what's going to happen before the temple is destroyed. And he gives, if you'll look at your passage there, he gives three things that the disciples will go through every day of their lives. And I'll tell you, even though he's talking directly to his disciples, these are three things every Christian living during this age is going to have to face one way or the other. Number one, there is deception. Deception is afoot in the world and it causes trouble. He says in verse uh, 6, Many will come in my name. See that no one leads you astray. Many will say, I am he. Don't listen to them. Don't be alarmed. He ends this whole section down there in verse 22 saying, Many false Christs, false messiahs, as well as false prophets, will go into the world. And they'll even perform miracles or things that look like miracles at least. And the aim of that, Satan has a hand in it, is to lead people astray. And Satan is even trying to lead the elect astray. The scripture tells us here and in many other places, notice three different times Jesus mentions the elect here. 
And the Bible teaches us a lot about this, how God has a chosen people. He has a people that he has set his love on and he is aiming to save them. Satan knows this. Satan knows God has a chosen people and Satan hates it. He's trying to undo it. He's trying to thwart the plan of God and he uses deception to do it. Now I realize in today's world we might hear this and think, I don't see why this is a big deal. Deception? Why is that a problem? Uh, we, we live in a world where we think as long as you believe something sincerely, it's true for you. Right? Don't we think that? I hold this belief sincerely, therefore it's true for me. Well, think about that for a second. Setting aside the idea that that's biblically incorrect, right? We'll set that aside for right now because the Bible clearly talks about truth with a capital T. God himself is the truth with a capital T. Set that aside. It doesn't even make common sense, right? I mean, let me reason with me for a minute. It does not make common sense. Have you ever seen American Idol, the, mo the show? How many of the contestants go on believing they're going to be the next American Idol and that they have the talent for it? And they believe it sincerely. I mean dead sincere, thinking that they're good. And it's entertaining for us to watch Simon Cowell right? Uh, leaving aside the fact that a British guy is judging who the American Idol is. I've never understood that, but nevertheless, he's straight up and he dispossesses them of their delusion. Listen, you can be deluded. You can be deceived. It doesn't make common sense to think, I hold it sincerely, therefore it's true. No, of course not. And Jesus says it's a bigger problem than you imagine. To be deceived, especially about matters of great eternal importance, is extremely dangerous. To be sent as the disciples into the world to preach the gospel meant they had to fight deception every day. And the same thing is the true of the church today. It's true of every Christian. We've got to fight deception every day. False teaching, false doctrine, false ideas matter. True ideas matter. True teaching matters. We have to cling to the one and get rid of the other. We have to fight, spiritually speaking, with weapons not made by hands, unseen weapons. We have to bring down every argument that exalts itself against Christ, which is what Paul tells us in Corinthians. Deception is there. But secondly, he says, you're also going to face turmoil of various kinds. Turmoil. Now, that's a general term, but the way I'm using it here means... Uh, natural disasters or geopolitical disasters that are a result of human sin. They're either a result directly because human beings create war, for example, which it says there, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Verse 8, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Every one of these conflicts is a result of human sin and rebellion and disobedience against God. But then there's also earthquakes, verse 8. In various places, in famines, and you may think, well, those are random. No, those are actually expressions of the judgment of God against sin. That's the way the Bible looks at those things. Now, it doesn't mean, we've talked about this plenty of times, it doesn't mean, well, the earthquake happened there, therefore those people in that place are worse than everybody else. Not that. But it's true that earthquakes happen and hurricanes happen and famines happen and pestilences happen because God is angry with sin. And God wants to express his anger so that people like us would turn from our sins and embrace his mercy. That's the whole point of these kinds of disasters. 
In fact, the destruction of the temple itself, which Jesus finally gets to in verse 14, if you'll notice that, that's what he means by when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. That means a foreign pagan king is going to come and stand in the temple and take it over and destroy it. That he's referring to a passage in Daniel. Actually, two passages in Daniel. Again, I'm not going to get caught in the weeds. You go look it up. Daniel 7, Daniel 12, where Daniel looks ahead to a time where the temple will be dismantled by a pagan king. Jesus says, you're going to see that. That's going to be one turmoil among many. But that, too, is a turmoil that is expressive of God's anger against sin. Remember, Jesus came to the temple, his house, his father's house, Looking for fruit, and what did he find? No fruit on the tree. Remember that? We talked about that several weeks ago. He cursed the fig tree, and then he went into the temple and cleansed the temple. The two things meant the same thing. God is looking for fruit from his people. When he doesn't find it, discipline, judgment comes. The dismantling of the temple, which, by the way, happened in 70 A.D., Most of what we read there in verses 14 through 23 deal with that event in 70 A.D. Just about 37 years after Jesus spoke the words. Some of his disciples uh, were alive and saw it. Some had already been martyred. Nevertheless, it happened 37 years later. That's pretty amazing when you just stop and think about it. Uh, Someone might say, well... Wait a minute, what if Mark is just making this up to make Jesus look like he predicted it right? Well, here's the problem with that. We have copies of Mark's gospel that predate the destruction of the temple. So Mark wrote it down that Jesus said this before the temple was even destroyed. Clearly, Jesus predicted it, and it came true. The judgment of God was expressed against the Jewish people and against that nation at that time. Because they had not responded to his grace the way that they were supposed to. What a sad thing. Yet look, I want you to see this. Jesus is hope in trouble. Because all throughout that section, verses 1 to 23, he tells his disciples, the trouble does not have to overwhelm you. Do you see those phrases? You could probably underline them. Be on your guard. Verse 9, don't be led astray. Verse 5, verse 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Even in the midst of trouble, it will be proclaimed. Um, Verse, uh, what is it, 11 or, or excuse me, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's trying, Satan is trying to deceive the elect, but for the sake of the elect, verse 20, God Cuts short the days that they might be saved. Therefore, verse 23, be on your guard. In other words, Jesus is saying trouble's going to come, not just the destruction of the temple, many troubles. And yet, you are able to stay firm. My plan is still going to come about. Did y'all hear that? That's good, isn't it? Bad things are happening, and yet, guess what? Here's the thing. Jesus is working in the midst of the mess and the tribulation and the trouble. He's working powerfully. The gospel, the good news is going to all the nations. It's being believed. The elect are being called and saved. Wow. 
God's people are being preserved while everybody else is falling to the wayside. I mean, it's an amazing thing. God is in the midst of his people. My favorite phrase in this whole section is there in verse 8. And I just want you to put your eyes on it again. Because this is beautiful. He says, don't think the end has come when all these things happen to you. These are but the beginning of what? Birth pains. That's cool. You say, well, how is that cool? It's because you're a man that you think that's cool. Well, here's why that's cool. What comes at the end of birth pains? A baby. Life. I have to rely on my wife to know what that's like. But she tells me it hurts like nothing else. And yet, when the baby lands on the chest at the end, forgot about my pain. What is Jesus saying? I'm at work in tribulation in such a way that the tribulation is not a dead end. It's not barrenness that's going to come out of the end of it. It's birth pains that are preparing for a huge birth. And that birth is going to be God's plan fully realized when Jesus returns. That, that's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. That's going to be God's people re- reunited face to face with their maker. Wow. What we're going through in our lives are but birth pains. Because Jesus is present with us. I'm reminded of so many stories in the Bible related to this. Remember when David was fighting the enemies? And God said, wait, don't attack yet. Wait until you hear the sound of the Lord marching in the tops of the trees. Remember that story? You'll hear the rush of wind through the tops of the trees. Then you know that I'm going with you. Then you're to go attack. That's what I think about here. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you'll hear me move in the tops of the trees as all these things take place. You're going to be arrested. Some of you are going to be killed. You're going to have to stand in front of kings, VIPs, and talk about me. It's going to be really nerve-wracking. But you will hear me move in the treetops. As I bring about my purpose. I'm reminded of when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire. And who did Nebuchadnezzar see there with them? One like a son of God. Christ. Right there. In the midst of the fiery furnace with the three boys. The three young men. Wow. Christ is in the midst of the fiery furnace with us. This is a big deal. I hope you see that, right? Uh, when, when we look at our lives and we think about how everything comes to an end, when we think about how our very lives themselves will come to an end, the end of the world will happen, right? Everybody talks about you know climate change and all the end of the world stuff, and I'm not going to talk about climate change this morning. That's way outside of my realm of expertise, for sure. But think about this. We as Christians have been done knowing That the world's going to end, right? For a long time, way before people figured out things about climate change, the world is going to end, right? At least in its present form. It's not a new surprise to us. And yet, and yet, a lot of times, when we consider that, we just become bitter. When we consider that, we run to delusions. You know what I'm talking about? Either bitter, oh, things are just terrible, life is terrible, uh, and there's no point to it. It's never going to get better. There's no hope in the midst of all this mess. Or delusional. 
Don't worry, be happy. It's going to be okay, right? Have another drink. Delusion. Here Jesus is offering something more than bitterness, something more than delusion. The Bible says we as Christians have the ability to see him who is invisible. If you can get that. You see him who is invisible at work in the world, even in the midst of mess. And you know it's not the end. Don't be deceived. It's not the end. These are birth pains. God is working his trouble out. My question to you, where do you lift up your eyes in trouble? Do you see who, him who is invisible? Do you see Christ in the treetops and down in the fiery furnace with his people? Or, or do you think, ah, it's a pointless world? Or have another drink? It's important. Now, secondly, we're going to see that Christ is not only the hope in trouble, which is a good thing. It's not enough to have Christ in trouble. You've got to have a hope beyond trouble. Take a look at what Jesus says there, starting in verse 24. This is where Jesus begins to turn, I believe. Now, this is controversial, and different commentators will say different things. I think I'm on about half and half, right? I'm on one half, and there are some that are on the other, so... If you read your study Bible and it says something different in your notes than what I'm about to tell you, it's okay. Don't be surprised. You can decide for yourself. But what I think is in verse 24 to 27, Jesus is talking about his second coming. He's speaking there about when he returns to end the world, to gather the nations in front of him and to judge them, sending them either to heaven or to hell. I believe that's what's being described. Now, that aside, notice what he says in verse 24. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be dark, the moon will turn to blood, the stars will fall, people will see the Son of Man, are you following me? In the clouds, great power and glory. He'll send out his angels to gather for the last time and the ultimate time all the elect from the four winds, from all places, from all times, all the dead raised, his people brought in. That's what he's describing there. But notice what he says, after that tribulation. After that tribulation. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? There is an after Right? Uh, Jesus is not just saying, boys, let me tell you, I'm about to die and rise again, and I'm going to go to heaven. It's going to be fun. I'm going to be there. But y'all are going to be down here, and it's going to be, oh, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be killed. You're going to be hated by everybody. The temple is going to be destroyed. Good luck. <laughs> just remember, I'm with you. Absent from body, but I'm with you in spirit. Good luck. No. I mean, that's a good thing that he's with us, of course. It's more than luck, of course. But isn't it essential that Jesus turns and says, after the tribulation? That he says that that's not going to last forever. That's a temporary phase. Now, the phase that I think he's describing, the tribulation, and I realize also this got controversy to it. What is the tribulation? I think it's this. The tribulation started in the days of the disciples and will end when Jesus returns. We're in it. We've been in it for 2,000 years, and we're going to keep being in it until Jesus splits the sky. 
uh, all those three things, deception, turmoil, and um, the third thing that I gave you, what was it? I'm testing you now. Remember, my, my mind is not working quite as clearly today. What was it? Turmoil, deception, and persecution. I didn't even give you that one. See, that's my fault. That's why I didn't know. Persecution. I forgot. That's very important. Those three things are going to be happening not just to the disciples, but to every Christian all around the world. From the time Jesus rose from the dead to the time he returns. We're in it. But Jesus says, not only am I with you in it, I'll be with you in a special way after it. Meaning it will end, but I won't. It will end, but you won't. You will not end. On the day after, I will gather my people, my chosen ones, that God has loved from before the world was made. I will gather them to myself. Now listen, you and I need that kind of hope. Have you ever ridden on a cable car before? A cable car has to be anchored in two places, not just one. There's usually an anchor down low and there's an anchor up high, right? And the car gets pulled up and the car gets pulled down from one point to the other, point A to point B, one low, one high. If the cable is only hooked to one end, do you have a ride? Do you have any transportation? No. It's a dead end. And so the two anchor points that Jesus is giving us here are both equally important. Anchor point one, I am with you in trouble. I'm here right now, and I'm working. You can't see me right now, but I'm working. Anchor point two, after the tribulation, you'll see me. And nobody in the world will be able to question that I have worked, and it has worked <laughs> fully. The plan of God has fully been realized. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Now, when you have those two anchor points, you got to ride, folks. Take away one of those or the other, you, have, you don't have a hope. Have them both, you got all the hope you need, now and forevermore. Jesus will return. The sun darken, the stars fall. And, and, and I believe that that's a figurative language. Um, this is uh, something that you can find in many places of the Bible. In fact, if you have the kind of Bible that has footnotes, like little cross-references, you'll see there's a giant list, at least in my Bible, of Old Testament passages that Jesus is alluding to or quoting when he says, the stars will fall, the sun will go dark, and the moon will stop giving its light. And every one of those Old Testament passages, if you'll go back and look them up, like the one in Joel that we read earlier, is using that as a metaphor for everything in the world is going to be turned upside down. All that is wrong is going to be made right, and all that is right is going to be established. That's what he's saying. When I come back, heaven's going to fall. All the things that you know today that are, that are bad, all the things that you know today that are sinful and full of pain are going to be undone. And here I am. What an anchor point. What an anchor point that is. They will see me. Verse 26. They, who is they? Everybody will see the Son of Man with power and glory. No longer will pe people be able to say, oh yeah, Jesus, that's your thing. Good job. Not my thing, your thing. No longer will they be able to say that because Jesus will be right in front of them. 
Now think about this. I want to ask you two questions here. Do you know there's an after? Do you draw hope from the after? Or are you trying to draw all your hope from the now? This is a critical question. Maybe the older you get, the more you realize you need the after. The younger you are, maybe the more deceived people tend to be right about these matters. Isn't it true we think after the tribulation, I'll have my retirement money. After the tribulation, the kids will be gone and we'll travel the world. After the tribulation, right? We do all these kinds of things in our minds. After the tribulation, everybody will love me. After the tribulation, I'll find Mr. Right. Like we anchor ourselves to very temporary things, earthbound things. Well, that's like putting a cable car at one end and looping it back around to the same end. You don't have a ride. If your hope is in something that will itself come to an end, then your hope will come to an end. Right? Everybody understand that? The younger you are, maybe the harder you'll, you'll be able to grasp that. But there is nothing in this life that will ultimately satisfy you. There's nothing in this life that will ultimately secure you. You must have an after. And that after cannot, by definition, be anything that is now. It must be above. It must be in the invisible at the moment where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. All right, I must move on and finish. Last point. There is hope for living. Jesus Christ is hope for living. Look at verses 28 through 37. This is where Jesus turns it towards the practical. He's told the disciples about the trouble they're going to face, including the destruction of the temple. He's given them some signs for its occurrence. He's answered their question. Then he gives them something they didn't ask about, which is his final coming and the end of the whole world. And then now in verse 28, he says, now here's how you got to live. Here's how you got to live in the light of this. I'm hope in trouble, I'm hope beyond trouble, and I'm also hope for you to draw on every single day. This is what it looks like. First of all, look at the fig tree and learn its lesson. Now, we hear that and we think, what? You know, fig tree, lesson, I don't even know. I don't know. I've never even seen a fig tree, somebody might say. And it might be true that you haven't. Well, just know this. They had seen one, and everybody in the audience knew exactly what Jesus was talking about because they were a farming society, right? They, they understood. You look at it, you see the branches becoming tender, you see it putting out leaves, and you know, without fail, summer is near. It's, it's on the doorstep, but summertime is the time when the figs come ripe. A farmer can look at his plants and tell... Harvest is coming soon. Jesus says, here's how you know, verse 29, I am near. You look at all the things I'm telling you, and you're going to see them come about. You're going to see deception. You're going to see persecution. You're going to see turmoil. The temple will be dismantled. You're going to see all these things happen. And you're going to know, I am at the very gates. My words won't pass away. I am there. Now I hear somebody saying, wait a minute. If he was at the gates in 70 AD and he's still at the gates, how do you, you know, like how do you say he was soon then and he's soon now? Just remember what the Bible says 
A thousand years to God is like a day. To God, a thousand years, the psalm says, passes like the watches of the night. Don't, don't judge God by your timetable. He's at the gates. He was at the gates then. He's at the gates now. He's very, very near. He goes on to say in verse 32, You know I'm near, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows. That is, no one on earth, no human, no angel. He even says, not even the Son, not even I know at this moment. Now, I don't believe that means Jesus, as God, doesn't know, or that now he doesn't know. I mean this, when God the Son became a man, he didn't cease to be God, but he did take on many of the humbling characteristics of humanity. He chose to do that willingly. He suffered. He got thirsty. He got tired. He had to sleep. These are things God doesn't have to do. As God, he didn't have to do them, but he willingly did them because he became a man. And this is another such thing. He willingly put himself with men in this sense of, I don't know when the end will come. But I have to trust my Father that it will come. Now think about it. If you have an event that is certain but you don't know exactly when it's going to happen, what does that do to your psyche? How does that change the way you think? You know it's going to happen, but you don't know when. How does that change you? Peace? Okay. Yeah. What else? Yeah. It gets you kind of, all right, got to get ready. Gets you anxious. It gets you kind of on pins and needles. Jesus is at the gates. You don't know at what hour the master will come back. What a beautiful picture that is. The master coming back to check in on his servants. And he might come at, at evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows. That's the wee hours of the morning. And he might come in the early dawn. All the times when people are sleeping, usually, by the way. Jesus says, be, be sure that you stay awake. When you know an event is going to happen of this magnitude, and you know it on good authority, but you don't know exactly when, the reason why you don't know when is because God wants you to be ready all the time. There is a readiness, there is a preparedness that we need. Now often we hear this, and this is where I'm going to end today, and it's very important to think about this next step. Often we hear this and our response is what? Let's be honest. Fear. Don't you think? I mean, these words can be taken in a very terrifying way. Jesus is at the gates, right? You don't know when the master will come, so stay awake, lest when he comes suddenly, he finds you asleep. You know, it's kind of like, you know, your mama saying, do you want to be found doing that when Jesus comes back? You know? It's kind of the, the wagging of the finger. I'm, I'm watching. I'm coming. Well, you can take this in a very terrifying, unsettling way. But let me tell you, I think to take it that way is to completely misunderstand how Jesus wants you to take it as his people. Have you ever seen at halftime of a big game, sometimes they'll bring out a wife and the kids, the dad's away at war overseas, they don't know what's about to happen. Although if they've ever watched football, they should know. I always think that, right? You know what's going to happen. But anyway, they seem to not know. And then there he comes. Suddenly. 
He was at the gates. They didn't know. He was at the gates. And then, now think about their, are they afraid of that? Are they terrified? Do they dread it? Why don't they? Simple answer. Very simple answer. Because they love him. And he loves them. And here, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. You can turn these words around and see them from a different angle. I am at the gates. Wow. Song of Solomon. My lover was at the door and I heard his hand on the bolt and my heart thrilled within me. Right? You could, you could, you could hear it that way. Jesus is at the gates. I hear his footsteps practically. And I couldn't be more excited to see him because he loves me and I love him. I don't know when my master is going to come. Oh, how exciting. I'm not not sleeping because I'm terrified of my master. I'm not sleeping because I love him and I want to be absolutely ready when he comes. This is amazing. Jesus is not wanting to impart fear to his people. Now, I grant you, if you're not a believer in Christ, his return is terrifying. But I don't want anybody in this room to be terrified of it because I want you to be a believer in Christ. I want you to be a lover of Christ because he has loved your soul. He has loved you. He came all the way to the gates of hell to rescue you out of hell. He became a servant. The master became a servant to serve you long before you were ever born or even thought of by human minds. Remember that? The elect. That means God knew you before you knew you. Before anybody knew you. And he came and he served on this earth to win you. Now think about it. He's at the gates. Now think about, oh, he may come in the middle of the night. Awesome. Amen? Jesus is hope. Let me tell you, whatever it is in your life that you are clinging to this morning, if it's not Jesus, it will end. If it's not God, if it's not found in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what he's got planned, it will come to an end. Think about it. Think about it. Where are you going to look? Some other creaturely thing? Are you going to tie your cable car to stuff that won't give you a ride? Or are you going to go to the one who is hope in trouble, beyond trouble, in life, for living, full of joy, because he is your love? Amen.